0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Katz, the host for this episode. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Isaac Kamola about his book, Making the World Global, U.S. Universities and the Production of the Global Imaginary. Which was published by Duke Press in in 2019. Dr. Kamala is currently an associate professor of political science at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, uh, and he's president of his college union chapter of the American Association of University Professors. Dr. Kamala, welcome to New Books.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. It's great to be with you.
1: So, Dr. Kamala, you know, I normally uh, begin my interviews for new books by asking guests to share, you know, a bit about their intellectual trajectory. Um, But in your case, this seems, you know, especially relevant to the book you produced and that, you know, if I've sort of understood it correctly, a core component of your argument is that it's worth taking serious the connections between the kind of material conditions of the university or academia uh, and the knowledge or concepts that academia produces, uh, both in terms of what types of knowledge these material conditions support and don't support. Uh, and then kind of more specific to your argument, you know, you propose that if academia by the mid 1990s largely kind of imagined the world to be global, uh, this isn't the imaginary of kind of cloistered academics in an ivory tower. Um, but rather this global imaginary must be rooted in in very real material conditions. Um, So we're gonna get into all of that um, in the interview, but to kind of start, uh, I wonder if you could sort of share how you came to be interested in kind of making uh, the university and other elite institutions of knowledge production, your focus of study and kind of what experiences in the material world uh, came to shape your own understanding of sort of how universities work, so to speak.
0: Great. That was a wonderful summary of the main argument. I wish I'd been as clear in the book itself. Thank you. Um, so as a graduate student, when I was working on my dissertation, I was originally planning on doing work on violence in Africa and especially lo- looking at the genocide in Rwanda. And, um, But I I became disenchanted with the way in which uh, scholars in international relations were talking about violence and and treating it as something that could be counted and something that could be understood. Um, And the ways that they were talking about it was, I found, um, uh, off-putting, and and I I didn't know where I was going to go. And at the same time, I got involved in... um, university politics. Uh, My second year as a grad student, uh, a friend of mine, Susan Kang, brought me to my first union rally of uh, clerical workers who were getting ready to go on strike. And when they went on strike, I was uh, with a group of students and grad students and professors that were supporting uh, the strike um, and became more and more involved in union Politics on campus. The following year, we tried to organize a graduate student union. The following year after that, there was another asympt clerical workers strike, and then there was just a bunch of uh, they're going. University of Minnesota was neoliberalizing and um, getting rid of a lot of the programs that allowed for access for first generation poor students of color, of color to campus, and so we protested the um, closing of General College. And while I was becoming more and more involved in university politics, I had to think of a new um, uh, dissertation top topic. And I wanted to study the university and this new interest of mine, but within the discipline of international relations and even political science more generally, there wasn't a lot of space to talk about the university. Um, and at the same time, I was finding that my I would submit papers on the university to conferences and they, would, they wouldn't they would be selected. And at the same time, I began to realize that the University of Minnesota was rebranding. It was to become one of the top three research universities in the world and that it was pushing globalization and there was funding. If you study glo- globalization, I thought, aha, I could put these two things together. I can study the universities and I can study glo- globalization because, you know, I get a job, I want to finish a dissertation, I want to get funded, I, all of these things. And in the process of going through that, it was a slow realization that it was actually the topic of my dissertation was being informed by both the funding that I could get and the possible futures that I could see myself in the university. And I got to think, wow, this is not just me, right? These these kinds of everyday decisions that seem very basic, like what one's going to write on, what books one is going to read, where one's going to publish, what conferences, the kind of ways that one is going to engage in their intellectual lives are driven in so many ways by the material conditions. And then especially working with clerical workers and unionized workers on campus and seeing the university as not this ivory tower, this place that was just uh, disembodied academics talking about great ideas, but was rather you know very much a place of production of labor where people were working hard and there was an expropriation of labor in order to make that kind of those academic debates and the seminars that I were taking possible. There was a direct connection between the material relations and the ability to produce academic ideas, and that became kind of the core of the dissertation. And that that part of it the became um, the uh, the last chapter kind of got expanded and and turned and fleshed out to this
1: book. Great. Um, So now we've sort of situated uh, a little bit, kind of what were your research methods for the project? I mean, you say, you know, in the intro, you kind of consider this uh, to be a work of theory, although certainly, you know, parts of it definitely read uh, like an intellectual history. Um, But I I know you also kind of had a month of fieldwork in South Africa. So I wonder if you might expand a bit kind of on how you went about figuring out the scope and shape of the book.
0: Yeah. So um, it kind of evolved over a long period of time and kind of originally it was, there was a chapter on South Africa when it was a dissertation, there was a chapter on South Africa. A lot of that work got turned into articles that were published elsewhere. Um, And it was kind of... Um the when I sat down to 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 write the book I wanted to think of I'm 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 increasingly compelled by storytelling and the ability to tell good stories in political science um and I think that um I'm deeply influenced by Louis Althusser and 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 the kind of the examination of overdetermination and the ways in which societies and 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 the world is deeply structured and, 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 the, and the contradictions that are built into that o- overdetermined structuring. So I wanted to tell the story about how um, kind of structure works in a very co- complicated way um, and kind of um, to engage the kind of what I saw, especially kind of in the years after the 1990s and 2000s, a kind of fetishization of agency. Right. And to kind of reexamine kind of complex economic structures but not in a way that's like a crass, crude, uh, uh, base, su- superstructure, determinist mar- uh, Marxist way. So, um, but I found that in writing about Althusser, like p- people automatically tur- turn off, right? They're like, I'm not interested in that guy. That guy killed his wife, not interested, you know? And so like, I think that th- that there's a way of which I couldn't get to the material uh, through an engagement with Althusser before, so uh, directly. So my question was, how could I, do an Altusarian method that uh, didn't really re- rely on a deep discussion of Althusser, which very few pe- uh, people are interested in. Um, so the question was how how to kind of use an Altusarian method in a way that was also in the form of storytelling. And I had done this before in studying the genocide in Rwanda, where I looked at kind of the con- the genocide as being the the created by the conditions of of the coffee economy and was able to kind of, if you look in the footnotes, there's Althusser there, but not in the main text. And it was kind of a telling of a story of overdetermination. So I wanted to do the same thing um, in this book. And what Althusser does that I really like about his work is he situates a particular theorist, right? And that could be Lenin or Rousseau or, you know, himself in a number of interesting essays and kind of thinks about the conjuncture, the organization of force and power and capital That array at a particular moment in time to make a certain conditions possible and to make certain subjectivities possible, Um, and he kind of uses the individual um, as a way of talking about broader structure. And so that's kind of how I organize the six chapters is by looking at an individual, either a professor, a business, or a person, a a president of the World Bank, or whoever, um, and kind of situate them within the material conjuncture of which they're a part. And so this oftentimes involved in a number of the the chapters doing archival work um, and kind of looking at and kind of pairing up what people are saying in public, right, the kinds of texts that are coming out in public and comparing those with the kind of institutional discussions of what's going on about, you know, how the particular institution that they're a part of, the World Bank or the Harvard Business School or whatever, is changing at the same time. Right. And kind of trying to draw not a causal relationship because Althusser is deeply skeptical of direct ca- causality, but to try to demonstrate the kinds of uh, relations that kind of make certain types of ideas possible at a particular time. Um, and, um, and so kind of using an individual story. So you, you kind of get a pointillist a narrative as opposed to a linear narrative. Um, but uh, oh, that's the method.
1: Yeah, yeah I, I'll also just note, right, I, I enjoyed how there was an optional part of the <laughs> intro that's kind of unusual. Um, but anyway, uh, so that's, that's really helpful, I think. And um, to just kind of ground our listeners a bit, um, I'm going to give them a kind of really brief outline of the topics covered in each chapter. You know, normally I don't do this, but since I think your argument is largely theoretical, it might be helpful just to kind of provide... Um, this roadmap up front. Um, but don't worry, we'll kind of get into kind of much more detail uh, with each chapter shortly. So in chapter one, you, you look at how kind of both the US government and philanthropic organizations work together to kind of transform higher education. and with it we kind of get the rise of area studies, which I'm sure will be kind of familiar to a degree to you know, many listeners. Um, and yet here you also look at WW Rostow, who as part of MIT's faculty at their Center for International Studies, develops what we kind of know of as modernization theory. Then chapter two sort of looks at how Rostow's academic ideas influenced the World Bank in the late 1960s when uh, Robert McNamara was its president. Specifically, modernization theory kind of justified new ideas of development and increased lending to do so, Uh, and you focus on kind of one outcome, which was the growth of African universities as sort of centers of intellectual vibrancy and anti-colonial thought. Then in chapter three, you turn to the world of business schools, uh, particularly marketing, and Theodore Levitt. Uh, who popular- popularizes the term globalization and kind of is encouraging businesses to imagine uh, that their markets are global, you know, whether or not that actually is the case. Then in Chapter 4, you return to the World Bank, um, but now uh, A.W. Clausen is in charge. He takes control in the 1980s uh, at the same moment that the business world is starting to imagine the world as global. Um, and this shapes Clausen's approach to the third world debt crisis. It also means that kind of unlike McNamara, Clausen sees education as a kind of private good. It's no longer a kind of national good. Now its value is tied to this concept of human capital, all of which justifies slashing funding for higher ed in Africa, along with you know, other austerity measures. Then in chapter five, you sort of look at how the social sciences within academia in the US shift from a kind of area studies model uh, to studying globalism within more traditional disciplines. Um, and you focus on the role played by the Social Science Research Council under the presidency of Kenneth Pruitt. And then finally, in chapter six, You turn to study abroad, recruitment of foreign students uh, and the practice of U.S. universities of creating branch campuses outside of the U.S., um, such as NYU's campuses in Abu Dhabi and Shanghai. Um, And you focus on kind of the economic incentives that are, are driving these trends. So in the intro, you note that, you know, given your hope that this book might be read as an accomplice. To the project of decolonizing the university, you know it might kind of seem odd that you focused on, as you put it, uh, how six white males inhabiting elite East Coast academic, philanthropic, and financial institutions reimagined the world. Uh, and since I imagine some listeners, you know, might be wondering uh, the same, I thought we might start by you explaining sort of why you see this project as sort of linked to this this larger project of decolonization.
0: Right. So that's a great question. I think that the what what the what I want to do with the project is to kind of demonstrate or mark the ways in which kind of in the nineteen sixties and the in the period of decolonization, there's what you might consider a broad ecosystem of ways of imagining the world. Right. Lots of different places around the world had very vibrant intellectual scenes that were very diff- very different from, from the US academy so i use the example of the university of dar es salaam and macera university in uganda where you know the the things that are concerning academics and intellectuals and politicians and their engagements with the university in those sites are different than what's going on at the same time at harvard and, and mit and the, the other schools that i look at and that those projects are very much tied in with creation of critique and the creation of a critique that's kind of engaged with social mo- movement is organic to kind of anti-colonial struggles and is articulating a world um, that's both currently defined by imperialism and colonialism and a future that could be uh, uh, in which colonialism and imperialism is eradicated. Um, and, and I think that in a way, the story is one of revolution, but one of then ca- counter-revolution. So, the process of thinking about education as a private good, for example, that comes out of the you know nineteen eighties and then becomes mainstreamed in the World Bank and and kind of expanded around around the world in the nineteen nineties. Thinking about higher education as a private commodity, right, that one invests in. Um, is very much part of a counter revolution against the uh, a vision of an emancipatory possibility of higher education. And so basically what, what I want to demonstrate in the book is not that, um, you know, there's this story of, of a possibility that gets squashed, right. But instead that, this kind of deep contradictions are always part of the universities, right? That the universities that we currently inhabit, which like what some might call the neoliberal university is both the product of past political victories for those who are seeking a more just uh, equitable decolonial world, as well as the, the effects of the political force and economic force that was created to retaliate and, and prevent those uh, 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 a significant political gain. So, in a way, thinking about the concept of globalization as it emerges in the US Academy in the 1990s as a symptom or an effect of the structural adjustment of universities in Africa, for example, as, as, a, as a thread throughout the book. Um, and then the way that gets replaced by a kind of NYU. A vision of study abroad and this kind of amazing experience to study you know, abroad and all these new places, um, that, that, that there's, there's a kind of way of, of, of thinking about the world that gets foreclosed upon um, in, in that. And so the idea is to not say, here's a decolonial vision of the university and how it can be enacted, but instead a way of saying that sites in which a different kind of world is possible exist have existed, continue to exist, right, but are always in a way under siege and the protection of those spaces, the expansion of those spaces, the preservation of those spaces um, requires a real conceptualization of the universities as sites of political and economic struggle Um, in order to, if we want universities to be sites uh, where a decolonial politics can take place, then it's important to understand the the conjunctural force that's arrayed against that project historically and and in the present.
1: Great, Um, and then kind of one last uh, thing before we we get into it. Uh, You provide a little bit of a defense for why you use, say, the the terms third world and global north versus global south. Um, So since we're likely going to be using these terms uh, in the interview, can you share maybe kind of why you've embraced them for the purposes of this book, despite their sort of contemporary baggage?
0: Yeah. So Third World in particular, I'm, I'm deeply inspired by Vijay Prashad's uh, uh, Darker Nations, People's His, uh, History of the Third World, in which he talks about the, the Third World as a political project, right, that was um, a way of seeing the world Differently articulating the world uh, differently that emerged from Bandung and, uh, and other uh, uh, projects throughout the mid 20th century, that was really saw the project of creating a different kind of world, right? Um, and so I use the term to in in, in that con- that con- that context that it's kind of a project. A pol- it was a political pro- project for, from from a, pr- a particular political um, a moment, and in a way, many of the critiques of the term right, um, also belie the moments in which those critiques uh, were made, right? So in an in increasingly third world, in, in, excuse me, in an increasingly neoliberal or corporate uh, university um, in the U.S. at a time in which the decolonization uh, of, of projects has either been uh, bi- violently suppressed or has kind of internally fractured, uh, then the the idea of third world can be seen as derogatory and all of those those uh, those criticisms of that time. But I think that it, it's kind of part of a conjunct a conjunctural analysis, right? Is that at a particular time, third world meant a particular thing, the institutions, the universities, the social movements, the the politicians, political leaders that were using that term meant it in a particular way. And as that conjuncture shifts, then the term itself shifts. And that's kind of another uh, example of kind of the how the ideas and the words and the, con- the concepts that we use are organized by the, conjun- the conjuncture in which they take part.
1: Great. All right. So now let's kind of get into the meat of the book. So chapter one takes place largely sort of post-World War II. Uh, at a time of sort of incredible growth in U.S. higher education, um, your book contained a lot of striking facts. You know, one of which was that more academics were hired during the 1960s than during the previous 325 years. Um, sounded like a good yeah. time to be on the job market. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. It. <laughs> for um, sure. So, to start, you know, kind of what explains this sort of massive growth of higher education?
0: Yeah, I think that that this is really important is that right now, the the language of neoliberalism and the decline of higher education, the crisis of higher education is really using a model of what is commonly referred to as the golden age of higher education from the mid 20th 20th century. And that idea that that golden age university is kind of under attack and being undermined. But in fact, like that period is quite exceptional, right? That higher education... you know, since forever has oftentimes been a, a, an elitist uh, activity that's very few people uh, get, get an education. The economies are not organized around the requirement of an education. Um, very, very few people um, are involved in, in, in the universities, right? It's very ra- a rarefied elitist space. And so what happened in the second world war was there was a real harnessing of universities in the war effort right that the it became clear that that the invention of radar and atomic weapons and and drugs that were helpful on the battlefield to keep sol- soldiers alive as well as you know the development of statisticians and you know to do logistics I'm I'm, re- I'm reading the biography of Milton Friedman r- right now and he's a he was a statistician who was doing um economics work, and he was part of, of the, an, a, an agency that was using statistics to identify the length that fuses should be on anti-aircraft weapons in order to make them more effective. And so you have like the the university becomes recruited in the war effort. And this is quite exceptional because American higher education doesn't have a federal system. Um, instead, it has this very decentralized private state systems or or public state systems and then private massive research universities, small colleges, community uh, colleges. And so you have this jumble of of institutions. And so it became very difficult to figure out how the U S government would harness these, all these different kinds of institutions to the war effort. And so what they developed was the kind of the granting of, 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 of research grants to individual faculties and labs, right? With the overhead or with now called fringe benefit would go to the universities, right? So universities, which might be very skeptical in taking federal money for fear of federal, uh, overreach in higher education's long history of American universities saying we want no federal government involvement in higher education. And so these research grants become a way for the universities to materially benefit from the funding of higher education. And then it puts monies directly into the the hands of individuals. Individual researchers, right, and so this massively increased the capacity of the universities to do all kinds of research, Um, and then and and the universities really liked this because they were able to expand and grow and build the infrastructures um, uh, that they needed, and then um, um, at the end of the Second World War, the um, uh, Vannevar Bush published a no uh, no uh, relationship to the war profiteer george w bush um uh, or prescott bush his grandfather um but um, that 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 vannevere bush uh, pu- uh, published this this influential report that basically says that this model of higher education needs to be maintained that for the national economy to uh, to grow and for america's strategic interests in the world economically political geopolitically militarily it's important to kind of maintain this relationship between federal funding and the university and so you get the creation of the of the, ver- the various fe- of federal agencies the nih and the nea and all all these organizations that fund um a research uh academic research and then you also at the same time have the gi bill that just uh, funnels uh, you know in a very short period of time uh, of more than a billion dollars in of of tuition um, money into institutions so you have institutions that go from being dozens of students to hundreds of students and go from hundreds of students to thousands of students um uh, in a very very short period of time and then when that happens you're getting more and more uh, people. And in, so instead of it being very white, very male, you're getting um, a, lar- a, lar- a larger, uh, you're, you're getting more women, you're getting people of color, you're getting a, a larger po- population of, of students into the university as well.
1: Yeah, I forget the the exact date. But I know you, you noted that at one point, I think maybe it was like 1946, 1947, that half the student population were veterans, which i don't know, just thinking about today. It's like very wildly different.
0: Yeah. Um, and it happens so quickly. I mean, and, you know, that's why a lot of the universities have really ugly architecture on them, right? This is all during the 50s and early 60s, kind of in this brutalist mo- moment, they're building like crazy. I mean, um, yeah.
1: Um, And so now that we've sort of got the basic context for U.S. higher ed at the time, kind of what is modernization theory? How did it come about and kind of why does it produce an imaginary of the world as a kind of set of discrete nations?
0: Yeah. So so what happens is that at the same time that you get this harnessing of the academy as an important strategic investment, um, you also have this important kind of political question which is U- u.s is emerging as a world power um and especially after the decimation of the economies and, co- and countries in europe kind of a, an unri- unrivaled world power and is asserting itself on the world stage but doesn't really necessarily have a kind of an understanding of how to do that right like if you look at the british imperial project there's Centuries of scholarship on how to effectively run a colony overseas, right? The the kind of recruitment of the university for the colonial uh, project kind of took hundreds of years of of kind of expertise in in terms of developing a colonial pro- project. And so um, the the U.S. it has to do do, do that very quickly uh, in terms of wow we're a kind of an unrivaled superpower. How do we ma- manage this new this new position? And part of that is kind of. How do you conceptualize the world and how do you conceptualize the U.S.'s role in the world? Right. And so modernization theory, as it was funded at the Center for International Studies, where W.W. Rostow was, um, is one way that was developed in order to answer that question. And so what modernization theory does is it kind of imagines each. Uh, country as its own individual unit that has its own largely internal dynamics. So if you look at Rostow's kind of five stages of economic growth that nations understood as a particular spatial area undergo a series of internal transformations that go, that take them from traditional or backwards, uncivilized, whatever the terms were um, into kind of increasingly modern societies. And the idea is that all countries, including those in, you know, newly independent African countries or uh, newly independent Asian or uh, Latin American uh, countries could develop along the same general path that the, the, that, that European countries in the in the U.S. evolved and Rostow himself was a historian of British economics so he basically identified the industrial revolution in Britain and basically uh, distilled that into a model of development and basically argued that all all countries can kind of go through this similar series of stages and arrive at the same endpoint, right and the important part for this was that you imagined or that the U.S. kind of the, the, the federal government, the, the security apparatus was particularly interested in this because it, you imagine the world as a series of units that can be kind of intervened upon. Right. And the U.S. is this kind of benevolent force in the center of of the world that's kind of nudging other countries along in this kind of selfless pursuit of. Becoming peers, right? You are not quite our peer yet, but if you make these changes, if you liberalize your economies, if you adopt these particular um, uh, institutions, if you do this, if you do, if you take these policies that just so happen to look like the preferred policy outcomes of, say, the U.S. and not the Soviet Union or, 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 uh, or, uh, or or other visions that were being articulated in the third worldist uh, movements and the not the non-aligned movement, um, then The argument was, if you adopt these kinds of policies, then you will arrive at an advanced industrialized country. So it was both kind of had a kind of a moralizing. It was a way of moralizing the the Western European and North American development model and universalizing it and applying it to all countries and then placing the U.S. as kind of the benevolent kind of leader and shepherd in, in the international system that they can help other nations kind of develop along this tried and true path, right? So I argue in the book that the result of the kind of material and the and the, the Center for International Studies where Rostow worked was funded by the CIA, the State Department, Ford Foundation, a bunch of philanthropic organizations that were heavily invested in this idea of kind of imagining US's role in the Um, world and especially in relationship and contrast to the Soviet Union. Um, And so the idea was, you know, here here was a model for articulating American foreign policy as a benevolent force in the world. And it was predicated on this idea of understanding individuals as discrete units that undergo their own internal change and transformation.
1: Great. Right. Um, and then, kind of, a running thread um, throughout your book, which also comes up in this chapter, is the history of African studies. So, how does everything you've just been kind of talking about influence the development of the sort of the professional field of African studies?
0: Yeah. So, part of this kind of new uh, position on the world stage that the US fi- finds itself is this realization that the study of the non Western world. Uh, has largely historically been uh, about kind of antiquity, right? So the study of of Sanskrit or the study of ancient texts, the study of you know, and 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 there was very little academic knowledge about the contemporary non Western world, right? And and other academic disciplines like economics, political science, sociology, kind of the social sciences were kind of emerged as a way kind of in the late 19th century, early 20th century, as a way of thinking about various aspects of the contemporary Western world, right? With with different disciplines, kind of looking at different aspects, political systems, economics, uh, society, et cetera. Um, and so the question became, are these models that have been developed in the social sciences, are they universal and can be applied to the non-Western world? Or do we need areas of expertise um, that can help u- understand how these parts of the world that are now parts of important strategic interests um, do how they function and how they operate? So during the, the Second World War, when the, the, the universities were kind of um, uh, harnessed, they created some early prototypes of of what would become kind of uh, comparative studies programs, where they would bring together um, scholars of literature and foreign language with historians and political scientists who who specialized in in, in non Western in parts of the non Western world and put to, uh, together very um, 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 area studies programs, kind of in in their prototypical form, and and those are oftentimes used to train soldiers and and especially officers. Before they deployed. Right. So if you're going to a, a French speaking country or you're going to be deployed to to North French, North, Af- North Africa, you might go and kind of get, get a crash course at one of these interdisciplinary uh, uh, programs that was on a, a college or university campus. And so that model kind of became extended after the Second World War um, and became more and more formalized with more and more um, of, fun- of funding um uh, set aside for it. So then the, the National Education Defense Act kind of created the funding streams for these interdisciplinary pro, uh, programs. Um, um, and, and And so they began to to proliferate in, in, uh, in lots of different, uh, institutions. Um, and so the idea was to kind of bring together and, and looking through those early do- documents that come out of the SSRC and other organizations that are talking about various studies. It really is this question of kind of how, what kind of e- evidence do we need to actually prove that the university, that, that, that the, um, the, the theories that are developed in the disciplines um, apply outside of the Western world. Um, and if not, what are the new theories that need to be developed and what are the skills that that, uh, that are need- needed in terms of understanding of language, culture, et cetera. So these became kind of uh, very well funded um, and very kind of vi- vibrant sites of, of inner inter- Disciplinary work. Um, and then they're closely tied in with the security apparatus, where, you know, if there's a, re- a revolution taking place in Nigeria or in, in Cuba, it's helpful to have a number of academics who. Know that part of the world, have know the language, know the the history, and kind of have a, 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 a working knowledge of that part of the world that can be tapped. What I call in the book as a strategic reserve, right? This kind of this body of work that's being generated in these interdisciplinary studies that, should it be needed in the interests of the state, can be tapped and brought into the security apparatus and 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 serve as the experts that kind of guide the foreign po- policy um a uh, decision making.
1: And then as you note, though, you know, certain institutions get left out of this process. So do you want to kind of expand on that a little?
0: Yeah. So so what happens is that this is, a you know, there's a lot of institutions that are primarily your most elite institutions, like your Harvard's, your MIT's, Columbia, um, and a lot of your Ivy League schools, your, ma- your major re- research universities um, that become you know, pri- primary focuses of area studies. And so in, in the case of African studies, you, you, you could think of the University of Wisconsin and other places that have become just, you know, major sources for the study of, of, of African pol- African politics. But oftentimes what happens is, you know, the historically black universities are largely excluded from uh, uh, receiving um, the Title VI programs. You also have um, the... Um, Um, you know, and, 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 and who, and who is, I I demonstrated enough, enough a number of examples about how it's oftentimes, you know, you know, people who have expertise, not necessarily in the area that they're researching, who may have other kinds of expertise, or may be kind of chummy in the old boy network that become the kind of the locuses of the centers, right? So it's people who have understandings of, say, sociology or history, who then, that, that uh, that become the major figures uh, within these institutions. So it's the creation of expertise uh, about the rest of the world without necessarily representation of scholars from those parts of the world participating um, in that generation of knowledge.
1: You also note, though, that. Uh, you know, despite what the government might have intended, there were some unintended consequences. Um, you know, in that it ended up, tra- you know, training a lot of kind of radical scholars that become very critical uh, of the U.S. government.
0: Yeah, that's right. And my my favorite exa- example is Emmanuel Wallerstein, right? Who, um, you know, is brought uh, is being trained as an African studies in, in African st- studies program, and then is. Is, it's the in the context of the civil rights movement and African decolonization and the kind of political struggles and because the area studies had an emphasis on on um, on field research a lot of students leave the American Academy where they're being trained in modernization theory and certain types of theoretical approaches to the world that are very you know that see the world through a us centered developmentist mo- modernist imaginary and they're arriving in um, to do field, field research in places where the certain assumptions that they're learning in the, the academy just don't hold up, right? It becomes a kind of a radicalizing um, um, experience for a lot of scholars. And, and and Wallerstein writes kind of quite dramatically about this His early books on African politics are very much kind of in a kind of US Academy, African politics size. And, and it's through working in um, the con- the context of African anti-colonial struggles, um, that he kind of develops this idea of world systems theory, right? And there's a, no- a number of other exa- examples of kind of how th- these kinds of deep contradictions are at play. That that uh, that's why I I've, I'm I'm trying to tell the story not as a linear story where it's like, you know, resources and power A results in ideology B, but instead to kind of think about, you know, that that process contains its own kind of contradictions, and so. These interdisciplinary studies became both closely tied in with the security apparatus, but also like very vo- uh, vocal, outspoken um, uh, sites for the um, the anti-war effort. Um, you know, the, the the fight against the Vietnam War. A lot of area studies and, and, and um, Asian studies associations and other kinds of uh, 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 were, were very important in in those struggles in very ra- radical and impressive ways.
1: Okay, let's now sort of turn to chapter two, which sort of looks at how modernization theory kind of goes from academia to the World Bank. So how did McNamara transform the World Bank and sort of what motivated these changes?
0: Yeah, so so McNamara is such an interesting figure. I, I, when I started uh, this book, he, he was the big-time boogeyman for me. And then kind of as I was reading... More of his work and kind of getting into him as a very complex, interesting, fascinating figure kind of became a a much more complicated story. Um, And and so what McNamara saw was, you know, when McNamara arrived at the World Bank, the World Bank was kind of a rudderless organization that had been created to rebuild um, um, Europe after the Second World War. But with the Marshall Plan, that original role of the bank was not needed so we kind of had no clear agenda right and it it was mcnamara who who kind of infused the world bank with a kind of this idea of of spending lots of resources to kind of fund development of projects in the non-western world right third world and so he um, what he did is he greatly expanded the capacity of the bank in terms of the overall amount of money that it was loaning out, and there's a number of ways that he did that. But he also expanded the capacity of the bank in terms of a, a, as a knowledge generating institution, right? So he brought in a number of, of of people from around the world and and in the areas from the the countries that. Where they were receiving proposals and they were loaning money, they're having very intensive debates within the, the the World Bank about kind of kind of how how development should take place. And McNamara himself had a very kind of uh, a vision of development that that, they, that followed on Rostow, which. Um, which was very, which looked at a number of things other than just infrastructure. So instead of this idea of just rebuilding infrastructure, um, his idea was to provide education, provide healthcare, to provide irrigation. Um, he was really focused on the economic development of rural peasants and the kind of development of kind of the the, the knowledge and infrastructures that it would take um, to kind of um, a, 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 a in, increase the the, the well being. Um, he was. Deeply influenced by kind of population control and this idea that you need to kind of change the 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 growth of the population, but a lot of these like ideas of his were very much about changing the the interior kind of the cultural uh, changes, very similar to uh, to modernization theory that you can kind of tinker with the way the society is organized and that's going to propel it in a certain uh, direction, right? And one of the things that he was really influential in is supporting education. So the World Bank was not interested in education prior to that it was interested in roads and electrical grids and the kind of big infrastructure uh, projects and he basically said that you know in order for a country to develop you know in this kind of modernist way you need this large of uh, a robust education system and so the idea was that you you needed to train the kind of the experts, the doctors, the teachers, the engineers, and all of those pe- those people that are necessary to kind of drive a, a modern economy. And so, he the the idea that they, they called it human capital, but their, their their notion of how how you understand the role of education was that. We don't know what the long-term effects of education is, but we know it's generally positive. And so there was a high support for funding of education of all kinds. So it was during uh, this time that, that countries, for example, Tanzania, are taking out World Bank loans and and. Dramatically increasing their their primary, secondary, and high, and higher education uh, programs, and you see kind of uh, declining illiteracy rates, a, a, a really a rapid uh, um, increase in the number of people attending uh, higher education. The universities themselves are growing um, quite rapidly, and there's there's and it's 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 interesting in a collection of of World Bank. Um, um, speeches that McNamara gives. There's a bunch of testimonials from the leaders of African countries like uh, Sangor and others that are kind of thinking of. I, I think, as as Senghor calls McNamara the uh, a, a poet in action or something like yeah. that, right? And and this idea that like you know there was a, um, a, a a kind of a a respect by a number of leaders in Africa, um, kind of about the kind of the 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 access to money and resources in order to build uh, uh, um, institutions um, and and kind of expands the state capacity to, to provide goods and certain services to its citizens. Um, so that there's that side of the story, and the other side of the story is that during the same time, the the universities and or excuse me, the World Bank is being harnessed as part of the Cold War project. So after the Cuban Revolution in particular, there was a kind of a, a rejiggering of the way that the uh, World Bank gave out money that made it possible to, to loan money, but also give money to countries that were well below what would otherwise re- re- um, 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 uh, justify or, um, uh, a World Bank loans. And so the idea w- with that was to kind of, you know, if if poverty and and dis and economic disaffection were part of what was attracting many countries to the Soviet sphere, that that pump, pumping money in through the World Bank would be a way of, of countering that. Right. So the World Bank is, again, kind of playing these different uh, uh you know aside but it also it is driven by this the, this modernization what I call the, the modernist development ima- imaginary right that sees these sees individual countries as kind of on a particular path towards mo- modernization and development
1: great and then you know of course as you note, kind of once again there are unintended effects here you know such as the fact that sort of the intellectual production happening on African, university campuses in the 1970s, you know, did not necessarily align with the, the agenda uh, of yeah. the U.S. government. Yeah, um, exactly. Okay. Uh, so in Chapter 3, you kind of take a, a sharp turn somewhat yeah. uh, to look at the, the world of business schools in the yeah. U.S., um, particularly Theodore Levitt. Um, so who kind of was Levitt? What milieu does he kind of yeah. come out of? And then sort of... Particularly kind of what did his article, The Globalization of Markets, argue and kind of why was it so influential?
0: Right. So when I was reading kind of the modernization theory literature, not excuse excuse me, the the globalization literature that was written in the 1990s and 2000s, you know, a lot of it mentions Theodore Levitt's article as being kind of a cornerstone of kind of globalization and kind of thinking about the world as global. So when I uh, when I see something reoccur like that, I say, Why is what is going on that everybody is acknowledging this particular text? How did this text come into being? Who wrote it and why? So that led me down this kind of very bizarre and quirky rabbit hole of Theodore Levitt's uh, kind of intellectual career and output. I had a lot of fun reading all of his articles and um, and and he's a he's I can't to this day I, I don't know if he's a charlatan or if he's brilliant or some combination of both. But um, he is a Harvard business. He was at Harvard Business School um, in and as a, a professor of marketing at a time in which marketing was kind of taking off as a field and this idea that. You know the and so he has all of this stuff about the imaginative and the creative and that advertising is poetry in motion and this idea of kind of creating this. You know he 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 talks about the desires of the consumers like consumers don't want quarter inch uh, drill drill bits they want quarter inch holes and kind of these aphorisms that he uses to kind of describe the world of marketing and then the ability for marketers to kind of capture the imaginary and to kind of encourage. uh, Consumption in, in, in particular ways, right? Um, and so he was a huge advocate of of of, mar- of marketing as a field, um, and and was really influential in the in the um, in the turn of mar- of marketing away from this idea of we have a warehouse full of stuff. How do we get people to buy stuff that's in our warehouse? And imagining it, and, and shifting the of uh, 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 the dialogue into what can we, how can we find out what consumers want that they currently don't want that they currently don't know that they want and then create the whole chain of, 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 consu- of consumption that allows consumers who currently don't know what they want to buy that stuff. Right. So it's a reconceptualization of, of marketing as, as this kind of like, um, creative process, um, that was about tapping into desires. Um, so his 19, um, Eighty-two, I think um, um, I say the, glo- the globalization of, mar- of markets makes a similar argument uh, uh, regarding glo- a globalization. And, and in there, he kind of takes takes to task the idea of those corporations and firms that still think about markets in terms of national markets. Right. So he's very critical of this idea that that a company would create a, a, va- a dishwasher or a, clo- a, a washing machine um, for Britain for Britain and would would um, interview British consumers and find out what they want in a, in a clothes washer and then go to France and interview French people about what they want in, in a, in a, in a, in a clothes washer and go to Italy and do the same thing and then produce three different commodities for those three markets, right? Understanding a market as a national market. So his, so his argument in that essay was that actually it makes more sense to create one commodity because you could do that more cost effectively by creating one commodity and then convince everybody else that that's the commodity that they want. So instead of seeing a series of of national markets, you would see one global market that was selling the same thing and then convincing the consumer that that thing that you were selling was the thing that they wanted. And it's really interesting in that essay because he kind of vacillates back and forth and he uses... Um, aphorisms Afro- ar- in very interesting and creative ways. It's kind of hard to tell exactly um, what he's saying, but I, but I interpret it as saying that, you know, he's a kind of ambivalent about whether we live in a global market, right? What, uh, wh- whether a global market actually exists, but he's definitely saying that firms should act as if we live in a global market and that those firms that act that way will be have greater economic success. So basically it's this interesting thing that, ha- that happens then by the 1990s and 2000s when social scientists are writing about globalization, they're actually writing about a world that Theodore Levitt Le- helped bring into being, right? Because the, uh, this article kind of made was widely circulated within the business community. He sat on a number of boards of corporations, of advertising firms, of various places. It was highly influential and was, you know, that that idea of kind of selling one commodity around the world, you know, that then gets interpreted a decade uh, 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 later saying, whoa, if you look at the world, there's Coke and Pepsi everywhere, right? (laughs) Um, and, And that idea that that, that, that phenomenon that was being studied by social scientists in the 1990s and 2000s is actually an effect of knowledge that was being produced in the business schools kind of across campus a decade earlier. And then flowed um, uh, very directly through business schools, the business school curriculums. Um, the text itself was widely circulated, as I mentioned. So.
1: And he's writing, you know, letters to to Clifford Geertz, the anthropologist. <laughs> yeah. I found that really like <laughs> surprising. That um, archive
0: was so bonkers. I mean, it was so wonderful uh, to find that. And he has all of this correspondence. And he he makes a list of of all of the leaders of industry, the presidents of corporations, the people. He sends a copy to Clausen at the World Bank um, of of his book, you know, and, and he's, he's, basically having his, um, his publicist kind of send out copies of these books. Um, he's, you know, he's pushing his, hit his articles into the hands of whoever is, um, is willing to take them. Um, and I asked the archivist at, at the, uh, um, at the uh, Harvard Business School ar- uh, archive, I was like, is, "Is it usual for scholars from you know the 1980s to be this aggressive in terms of self self uh, 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 publicizing? Because it's not like you could put it on a website and people go and find it or whatever." So, and he's like, "No, this is really really unique that this kind of very aggressive self marketing." Like, and I think that's part of, of of Levitt is that the kind of he understood what he was doing itself as marketing, right? So he was marketing his own ideas about marketing.
1: And then, so you've sort of hinted, right, sort of next, uh, in chapter four, you take us kind of back to the World Bank, um, but now it's under the control of A.W. Clausen. Um, So sort of, you know, who was Clausen? Where did his conviction that the world was a global financial market come from? And then how did this conviction give way to the policies of structural adjustment. Great. Yeah. So, um, so,
0: Cla- so Clausen is not nearly, I think as interesting as McNamara or, uh, or, 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 Levitt. Um, but he comes from the world of banking. He was, he, he was at various, I mean, he was high up. And I think at some, at one point, pre- uh, president of bank of America, um, at, at a time in which bank of America was increasingly being in, involved in the third world debt crisis, right? So you had this kind of during the seventies and you had this high levels of inflation state and economic stagnation and this kind of economic crisis in those countries that had taken out loans under McNamara being required to pay, to pay them back at much higher interest rates now. And this kind of the kind of the, the, the third world debt crisis kind of spiraling out. Um, Claussen, while he was at Bank of America, was very much part of that project, right? The Bank of America at that time went, went from a small local bank to a regional bank, to a national bank, to an international bank. And one, and one of the things that that it was kind of making the most amount of profits at during the 1970s was circulating petrodollars you know from the middle east and and back into the the, the countries that were experiencing kind of debt, cri- a, debt a debt crisis and loan and loaning m- money to the third world and it was kind of a uh, an important part of of the um uh of what the bank was doing uh, when when Claassen was at the helm, right before uh, McNamara left the bank in the late seventies, there was kind of a, a serious kind of d- a discussion within the bank, and this and, and this idea of the need for structural adjustment, right? But structural adjustment at the tail end of the McNamara bank really meant kind of reorganizing how the economy was structured, and even something that looked a little bit like wealthy countries. Paying and providing money it was kind of it was something like a kind of international um, um, kind of re, a form of redistribution I, I think that it, uh, it it was informed by some of the work by the new international economic order um, and kind of thinking about um um, uh, uh, Clason was or excuse me McNamara was interested in thinking about how those countries who were receiving incredible amounts of money through high oil prices could then kind of use some of that new surpluses to help countries that were poor purchase fuel and, and purchase energy and this kind of this idea of structural adjustment being the kind of Remaking of the way the world economy was organized to kind of balance it out and equal it out a little bit more. Uh, when Clausen takes um, uh, over in 1980, he's he's uninterested in the McNamara's idea of of, of national development, and he's uninterested, especially in his fo- his focus on on poverty reduction. Right, he's he's a, a neoliberal liberal through through and through, thinking that. You know, what you need to do is is make sure that prices are accurate. Right. And to make sure that the international market um, is kind of uh, uh, reaches its kind of equilibrium. And so what that entails is not not intervening um, as much and instead kind of helping countries to kind of re- regulate their monetary um, policy right so so in, in a way he imagines the world not as a series of national economies that are pursuing national development but rather a single uh, a financial market right and the goal was to in this increasingly global financial mar- market so he understood global as a global financial market um, that 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 you would um, that countries would would be able to demonstrate that they would be um, good recipients of capital and other forms of FDI and and, and inve- investment by paying their debts. And also by engaging in what he defined as structural adjustment in terms of the cut, the cutting of of national expenditures, um, and the and and, and the the, in, the the kind of decreasing of government expenditures um, in order to demonstrate to the global financial markets that those countries would be able to pay back other uh, debts into the future, and then making them attractive to foreign cap- capital. So he's kind of reimagining the role of the World Bank as this kind of regulator of the flow of capital and kind of making different countries more um, 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 amenable to foreign cap, uh, capital.
1: Right. As you put it too, there's this assumption that he has that you know the global market is just kind of a fact that can't be adjusted, whereas so all the onus is then on nations to kind of adjust their own individual economies. So your, your overall sort of discussion of structural adjustment kind of takes us back to the topic of African universities, which came again in the 1970s, were flourishing. So then how does structural um, adjustment impact them? How does it sort of interpret their value? Um, you know, how, how does this sort of view of a global market change the kind of conceptual evaluation of education? Um, and then how does this kind of impact the material? conditions of higher ed in Africa?
0: Yeah. So basically what happens is um, you get this kind of reconceptualization of, well, it, so so Cla- so in the Klassen Bank, the focus be- becomes on rate of return, right? So the idea is we're no longer going to fund... Programs or fund initiatives that we don't know what the economic outcome is, right? So, whereas McNamara had this idea that higher education is generally good, it generally leads to national development and therefore will fund education, uh, McNamara or Cla- uh, Claussen was concerned. You ha- what? How do you demonstrate what the rate of return on education is? Right. So for this, he turned to a bunch of folks, Becker and, uh, and others who were working at the University of Chicago, very neoliberal m- model of of education and around uh, uh, human capital theory. And the idea was that the difference, the the rate of return on education could be understood as the difference between one's wage with an education minus one weight one's wage without an, an education. Right. So so. All of a sudden, you have this this kind of transformation of thinking about education not as a national good, right, but as an individual good, and then as something that one can invest in privately. So in the same way that a firm might say, is it in our interest to spend... Uh, you know, a million dollars are expanding our factory, what is going to be the rate of return on that investment? An individual says, well, is it worth my interest to spend, you know, $50,000 a year to get a college degree? That's going to increase my lifelong earnings. That is a a, um, a viable um, um, a choice to make. So basically there've been a series of scholars that have been doing a rate of return calculations around in countries around, around the world on Higher educ uh, on, on, on education. And they basically wrote a number of reports. Some of them got brought into the World Bank um, and concluded that the rate of return on higher education is only 13%, which is far less than the, the calculated rate of return on pri- on primary e- education. Um, I would still love something that has a 13% rate of return, but apparently um, that um, the, ar- the argument that the World Bank made was you know it makes more interest to spend limited government resources on primary education and and to cut higher education and not only that that uh, 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 african universities don't have a comparative advantage in providing higher education that you could go the cost of of educating a student in an african university is going to be lower is going to be higher than the cost of 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 doing that in an american or european institution and so 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 the idea was if if higher education is a private good and not a public good and African countries don't have a comparative advantage in higher education, then it makes sense to defund higher education and send the best African students to study abroad, right? So the 1980s, 1990s, you see this kind of massive retrenchment in higher education. It's a time that one of the saddest things that I came across in my research was, was that this period was known as the book famine in many, many African universities where you couldn't get just books, you know, and the ability to kind of conduct, you know, research, you know, the infrastructures that, that you need in libraries and computers and buildings and all that stuff was the, the funding um, for that was quite, uh, was slashed dramatically. And then at the same time, you get the kind of the 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 students who, who might have, who were, you know, who, who might who might have stayed in in african universities to pursue their their education are being encouraged uh, uh, uh to study abroad so you get this massive uh exodus of those students that that have connections and also have the intellectual capacity they to, to have the you know are 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 kind of pushed to move and to study abroad right and so you get this kind of a brain a brain drain out of african universities um and this kind of um you know this the the, 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 retren- the retrenchment of these once vibrant intellectual scenes,
1: right? Yeah. And so, you know, now you make a kind of interesting connection, which is that sort of the same economic logic, the same kind of global imaginary, i.e. the kind of idea that education is a marketable good and that its value is sort of no longer linked to kind of national development um, but rather kind of generating value within a kind of global knowledge economy, which you know proved so tragic for African universities in the 1980s, is in the 1990s now kind of applied to American universities. So I hadn't thought before to kind of connect the crisis in African higher ed um, in the face of structural adjustment to the crisis of higher ed in the U.S. So I, I found this quite uh, interesting. So you, you start the sort of the, the final section of the book, looking at the Social Science Research Council or SSRC, uh, during the time that Kenneth Pruitt was its president. Um, so first, it's sort of so that it's clear um, why the, the 90s represents a stark shift. How did the SSRC kind of come to support area studies during the Cold War?
0: Yeah, I mean, so the the SSRC was one of the main kind of organizations that both fu- funded but also kind of supported research circles in in the area studies. So it, it, it facilitated both the the writing of the documents that justified and supported the the need to create uh, area studies and conceptualize what area studies was, but that then it also played a very active role in bringing and networking scholars together into various uh, area studies uh, clusters and funding a lot of the top figures who would become major scholars in area studies, right? And so it played this kind of uh, outsized role in the construction of area studies as an academic uh, project. By the 1990s, radically restructures the way that it organizes a- uh, area studies. So instead of having like it's African studies, it's, you know, it's Latin American studies and it's various kind of like this distribution of funding organized by region. Right. It, it kind of recreates. It's the way that, that it, 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 funds um, academic uh, projects kind of more conce- uh, conceptually. Right. And, and, and kind of, not based around these kinds of st- static uh, regional uh, 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 groupings, but kind of ad- adopts kind of more thematic um, approaches and, um, and, pro- and projects with this emphasis on interdisciplinarity and also through the language of globalization. And the, 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 the language is like, we live in a, in a global world now the world is self-evidently global. And therefore, we it doesn't make sense to divide the world up into regions and, stu- and study them in terms of area studies. Right. It's interesting that if you look at the annual reports from the same time, it's also clear that there's kind of a budgetary issues that are going on. And there's internal discussions about how donors are not really interested in kind of studying in, in funding uh, areas to studies in anymore, that this language of globalization had kind of trickled into the business world and become kind of naturalized there, and that donors were increasingly interested in studying stuff that was like global in um, in breadth. And so, um, you know, um, unfortunately, the archives where I could have like really narrowed this down and, and identified the documents um, are closed at the time when I was writing uh, uh, the book. But I think that, um, you know, there's enough evidence in in the ch- in, in the chapter that demonstrates that this kind of concern about kind of where that funding um, um, uh, what the funders were interested in was shaping these kinds of internal discussions about how to reorganize the distribution of resources to area studies scholars. And so oftentimes, like what you see during this time is scholars who are trained in area studies, kind of reconfiguring what The research that they were doing in order to speak to global studies, right? So you see, kind of a number of scholars who had been area studies, had focused, you know, done a bunch of of field research, who had done a bunch of of who are you know fluent in in multiple languages, who knew the a particular area that and region that they had had spent their career uh, working on, are now kind of reframing uh, their work as talking about the global and globalization more generally.
1: Yeah, I'll say as a sort of brief aside, you know, in your intro, you note that a kind of test of your book is whether readers can identify their own institutions and conjunctures junctures uh, reflected in the book. Uh, and here is where it sort of hit home uh, the most for me, sort of thinking back on all the sort of annual grant writing workshops I sat in on uh, at the African History and Anthropology workshop during grad school, where sort of myself and others were sort of always being encouraged to kind of make our more narrow Projects sort of speak to kind of global phenomena, so like that that hit home, um, including you know applying to the SSRC. Uh, okay, so so finally uh, you turn to an aspect of the contemporary world of higher education that will probably be familiar to many listeners, whether they're in academia or not, um, which is sort of the explosion of study abroad recruitment of foreign students, and then the rise of satellite campuses, most notably NYU, NYU Abu Dhabi, and NYU Shanghai. So here again, you've got some striking uh, statistics, one being that sort of while in 2000, 65% of US higher ed institutions offered study abroad, and then just six years later, it jumped to 91%. Uh, And so here there is, again, a kind of strong connection uh, to your earlier chapter on on marketing in the global uh, imaginary. So sort of how is all of this global education marketed to American students and their parents?
0: Yeah, so I mean, it's something as somebody who, who had a profound study abroad experience myself, like my goal is not to disparage study abroad as an activity, right? But to basically... Document the ways in which the role that um, the role of of study abroad branch campuses kind of changes as the political economy of higher education um, is also ch- changing, and that the language of globalization plays an important role in kind of marking that shift. So. Um, so I'm really interested in another person who's who's pretty an interesting um, uh, figure is, is John Sexton, who's the president of NYU. Um, and I argue in the chapter that he de- he demonstrates what I call an edu theological view of the of of. Of globalization, right? Is that in a way he he has this view? He has Jesuit background and sees universities as kind of being these places of emancipation where people from all around the world can come together to uh, discuss hard ideas and create a new kind of world through free exchange. And this idea that students and faculty are kind of moving around the world freely and exchanging ideas. And that this is what he calls an ecumenical gift to the world, right? That NYU is providing this kind of ecumenical gift to the world, right? Um, At the same time, what's fascinating in that story that he tells is that you have nothing of the kind of the making of the Abu Dhabi Campus, which involves pretty horrendous labor uh, violations, working with a kind of repressive regime, um, que- questionable relations of academic of freedom, c- critics of NYU Abu Dhabi like a- Andrew Wright, Ross not being allowed into the country, retaliation against scol- you know all all of these things that are you know not exactly the opposite of that view of education that, that, that John Sexton kind of waxes. So, so, so poetically about, I think that this, uh, this disjuncture between the idea of education as this transcendent gift to the world and the materiality of the, what goes into the providing of of education is, is really important, right? Because it, Um, it kind of allows the universities to leave the limits of their particular location. So NYU, for example, Manhattan, high land prices in constant political disputes with its neighbors as it tries to expand, you know, huge nonprofit that's not paying uh, uh, taxes to the city is deeply uh, criticized uh, uh, for that, et cetera, et cetera. The idea of a branch campus then becomes a way to kind of leave behind those material constraints and go elsewhere um where um you know and and so 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 that idea of kind of like education as this transformative project and i think that's the same kind of bill of goods that gets um an important part of the dna of 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 a lot of study abroad now which is kind of this idea of individual self-betterment and the kind of like the individual Individual experience that a student has abroad, and the kind of the marketing of an experience abroad, and the way that that idea of the individualized experience um, becomes then also an important uh, revenue stream for many uh, colleges and universities. Either to market themselves as global, right? You could come to the super rural school in you know the you know I went to Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington, and yet you know, you can go, then go to Paris or go to uh, Nairobi or go anywhere you want in the world and study and be a global citizen and all and all of that kind of stuff, right? So that idea of the ability to leave your current place and go elsewhere and be part of this kind of, you know, free movement of, of, of intellectuals and ideas and peoples and capital. Um, and the ways that that contrasts with the actual reality of the kind of material constraints that are being placed on universities, but also on students in the form of debt, et cetera. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I've also noticed as I've been, you know, applying to jobs and sort of looking at different institutions, there seems to be a growing number of study abroad, specifically geared to business school students to kind of learn how to, you know, operate in the, the global market. Um, Okay, so, you know, I appreciate that, you know, in your conclusion, you note that the kind of the goal of your book is to suggest that to kind of get more equitable imaginaries of the world, we need different academic institutions, or at least new ways of sort of organizing the production of knowledge. And I accept that, you know, as you point out, uh, this task is kind of larger than any one person or book can be expected to accomplish. But I wonder if, you know, since the publication of the book, um, and maybe in terms of feedback you've gotten, you know, if you do have any ideas for, for how that might start to happen.
0: Yeah, I think that um, Eli Meyerhoff has this amazing book called Beyond Education, in which he talks about thinking of uh, within, outside and beyond the university. So I think that what happens is that certain types of of intellectuals have kind of seen the university as the horizon of possibility, right? And that idea that the only place that certain types of thinking can take place and certain types of intellectual work can take place is within the university. On the one hand, that's true because a lot of the institutions in which that had otherwise been. A part of you know political par- parties mo- movements um, publications uh, the uh, the press etc. Um, you know a lot of those are 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 experiencing the same types of assaults and anti anti intellectual assaults right wing assaults um, that the university is also experiencing. So on the one hand, universities have become a certain type of refuge point, right? But I think that kind of thinking of the universities as the only places in which certain types of academic work can take place then means like in a way that that kind of work becomes like a fish in a barrel, right? It's easy to uh, uh, to pick off. So uh, I'm really interested in pro- in projects that try to think about, you know, what does education and pedagogy look like kind of in ways that are expanded beyond the university's walls? And again, in Eli's book, he talks about um, experiences with, with uh, experimental co- uh, college in, in Minnesota, which was a kind of a autonomous university of free classes that were taught hundreds of classes, uh, a a quarter kind of around the university. Um, There's also, I think, you know, ways of, 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 and he, he, he develops uh, this idea of, of study, right. And that, that politics of study and engagement um, not for, you know, not to contribute to a literature, not to kind of make a career in the university, but instead to think of study um, a, a radical forms of study as understanding the world in order to transform it you know, and of course that, that already takes place within social movements and unions and takes place, um, um, all over, but kind of thinking about the kinds of institutions that are needed to make that more likely and to kind of cultivate that type of, of knowledge making. So, you know, all kinds of, you know, social movements, um, activist groups that, that are doing research. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm inspired by those activist groups that are doing work on Coke money. We could talk a little bit more about that. And, and, you know, just to kind of think about how are the skills in the academy that we learn as students and as faculty uh, members, um, are transferable in, uh, A a a scene, a political scene that's not just understood as you know the politics of my particular campus or the kind of a a limited way, right? I I I think the 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 movements to make, um, you know, uh, faculty led uh, universities is important. Uh, Also, think that the movement against. Uh, student debt is absolutely important, especially if we consider that the movement like that, 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 that political debt, uh, student debt, you know, was a manufactured of this notion of human capital that I talked about in, in you know, that it was, it was you know, neo liberal academics and it was li- libertarian think tanks that spread that idea that in order to make sure that you don't get student protests in the 60s you require students to pay for their own education and to treat it as an investment and a personal in- investment. That was a political strategy that was deployed by think tanks and by politicians and by political n- uh, networks backed by corporate money in order to push that as a political pro- uh, project that we see it in the classroom. Students making decisions about what they teach and what classes or or what classes they take and you know the the kinds of majors that they pursue based on this idea of how am i ever going to pay off all all of this debt right so part of the idea like expanding you know um you know and 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 then um you know expanding uh, the capacity for free thought means you know expanding the um um you know the ability for students to study what they want and how they want. It's also you know international kle- eclecticism and 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 or, an organized protests. I think the the um uh, the roads must fall and feeds must fall. South African uh, protests are absolutely influential in terms of thinking about you know the creation of a different vision of the university, the enactment of that university, occupying space and creating a different type of 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 intellectual scene um, is is a great example that that I oftentimes look to.
1: Yeah. I I think your book makes a good case that, you know, all professors of the humanities, if they want to save the humanities, they should be supporting canceling uh, student debt. Um, So, you know, since your, your work is sort of ultimately one of theory, I hope it's okay to sort of ask one question about a time period, not covered in your book, uh, mainly the last couple of years. So, you know, of course, uh, while I was reading this, I often found myself thinking about current conditions that we kind of all find ourselves in, uh, what with literally a global <laughs> pandemic, uh, the dramatic shift of education from in-person to online, uh, the new bouts of austerity sort of faced by academia. And so while reading the book, I found myself Thinking about kind of how some of what you're talking about has become increasingly visible from universities' dependence on tuition and programs like study abroad. You know, I mean, students are becoming aware of this as well and not just sort of faculty. Uh, to a growing sense, you know, particularly among graduate students and contingent faculty, that there's a need to unionize. You I know, mean, we're seeing kind of more, I mean, right now what's going on at Columbia. Uh, and so I wonder how, based on your own research, how you've been kind of digesting the last couple of years, and sort of you know what new global imaginaries you think might be possible or not possible as sort of the material conditions of the university are continuing to change quite quite dramatically.
0: Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I, you you could tell I started the dissertation at a time in which the premise of the introduction was true, right? That there was no other way of imagining the world except as global. Right. And that, that was kind of in my mind when I was writing the dissertation in the, you know, 20, you know, up through 2010. And then in the years since that seemed to be true. Right. And now with the rise of kind of far right nationalists and the emergence of a nationalist right, um, and, and and the kind of the, the crisis of the kind of suppositions, like the crisis of capitalism, the, cri- the crisis of the neoliberal econ- economy kind of playing out in all in all, all these very real and scary ways, I think is 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 true. And I, I think that w- what's happening is, you know, on the one hand, you know, they're the the universities are increasingly in crisis in a way. Um, again it's not like the crisis isn't new the university has always been in crisis for many people um um, but the the idea of the kind of that golden age of higher education kind of from the mid-20th century seems further and further and further away and the kinds of you know just the cost of education the extractive nature of of it um is becoming more and more evident and more and more publicly talked about right um and so I think that there's a, yeah, there, there is this growing aware awareness of the limits of education, right? And, 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 all, and, and also that that kind of like education wage contract is no longer true, right? That idea of is spending this tuition money going to mean higher income in the future, even in a like a, a standard uh, human capital analysis, that analysis may no longer be true, that the debt that one accrues might not e- ever pay for the wages from jobs that may not exist or currently don't exist, right? So um, I think that the kind of the rethinking of the university, you know, in terms of uh, kind of a private good and a private investment is either, you know, it's it's something that if we want universities to be robust institutions that people from all walks of life can participate in, a collective uh, intellectual life, then... Um, are are going to have to, you know, dramatically change, and and I think you're right that like the kind of con- the amazing contingent faculty organizing, grad student organizing, Columbia University being just a huge, uh, inspiring example of 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 of, of really uh, amazing uh, organizing and and and, and uh, work um, is, I think, kind of what's going to happen, like that, that contradiction is kind of being laid bare. And we're going to see a kind of, I mean, the moment calls for a kind of rearticulation of what the university is, what it can do, what it isn't now, but could, but could become. Um, And then also at the same time, we're seeing a much more right, right wing attack against that. So the, the kind of the man, the manufactured crisis about Cultural uh, critical race theory being a perfect example of, you know, the weaponization of a certain kind of attack against those students and faculty met, uh, members who have called for universities become more just and equitable places, right? And doing the work, intellectual and political work of trying to make institutions to be different than they currently are, right? Are now seeing the same kind uh, kind of reta- re- retaliation and political attack, and so you get this kind of heightened sense right i wasn't there during the uh, um the student pro- uh, protests around the vietnam war so me may- so maybe this kind of heightened kind of sense of ten- of, ten- of tension is not new but is is part of the history of of high- of higher education american hi- uh, higher education but um but those 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 tensions um that i teased out in the book have kind of been laid bare, I think, uh, in a way that's that's fairly dramatic, and maybe too the broader kind of question about the global imaginary is also imperiled as these intentions, as these te- these tensions uh, are, are becoming in, um, increasingly laid bare. Right. So if 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 studying marketing and is is not about you know is about preserving. Uh, one of the few boats on a or, or seats on the life raft of failing capitalism, as opposed to participating in you know the the, the ecumenical global gift to the world, then then education becomes something else, and there's you know those contradictions can can really be made made bear, you know in a way that makes it more possible to organize around them, but all, but also a really scary in terms of what they unleash.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, on that note, uh, Professor Kamala, we've taken up a lot of your time, uh, but I did have one last topic I wanted to touch on, which is that I noticed that just last month you co-published another book, um, which perhaps you'll have to come back to new books to talk about, uh, called Free Speech and Coke Money, Manufacturing a Campus Culture War. So, you know, it's a fairly uh, straightforward title, but do you maybe want to give us briefly a sense of what the book uncovers?
0: Sure. So the book looks at the kind of the so-called campus culture war that's happened, especially since 2017, when a bunch of controversial speakers like Milo Yiannopoulos, Ben Shapiro, Charles Murray, and others started making appearances on college campuses, causing protests, and then creating this firestorm about how intolerant uh, universities are to uh, to conservative voices. Basically, what we do in the book is we demonstrate that this kind of, crisis so-called uh, crisis is manufactured and is manufactured by a deeply networked group of political um, organizations that are largely a part of the Coke donor network and so we first kind of look at it um, it's co-written with uh, Ralph Wilson who's a former co of uh, he was a co- I'm founder of the group on Coke My Campus and a, a lead researcher in this in, in the space of looking at uh, coke funding in, in higher education, and we and we we demonstrate that since the 1970s, um, higher education has been a primary target for the coke donor network, understanding that if you want to transform society, if you want to radically transform society in the vision of a neoliberal a a radical not even neoliberal like a radical libertarian view of the world Um, then you have to start with with the university in order to legitimize certain ideas and then there's there's a kind of a a strategy for social change that puts the university at the top you make changes to the university you bring in students and faculty to to make certain arguments and to train certain activists those ideas and students then trickle into the think tank network that's also deeply connected um, with people and scholars and students moving between the academy and the think tanks and in doing so legitimizing those think tanks and the ideas that they produce. The ideas that are produced in those think tanks then move to the political sphere, so groups like the American Legislative Exchange Committee Council account, or the Federalist Society um, or other groups like uh, Americans for Prosperity that that run kind of a ground operations uh, for elections and, and on policy uh, in, issues that kind of advocate for certain ideas that were developed in these think tanks. And then the last step of this is actual policy change, right? Um, And we demonstrate that that the campus free speech mo- uh, movement is organized in a, sim- a similar way, right? There's a number of student groups on campus that are paid for by the Koch donor ne- a network that bring provocateurs to campus. Those provocateurs, their entire careers, like Charles Murray, are made possible because of the Koch donor uh, a network. They cause protests, which are then amplified in the right-wing media ecosystem where organizations like Campus Reform and the College Fix specialize in write- writing outrage stories about the persecution of conservatives on campus, those go into the broader ecosystem where they reverberate through a whole bunch of other media sources themselves pay, paid for by right wing and, and libertarian donors um, that then leads to policy change where there's groups like ALEC. I've pushed um, um, a legislation to criminalize the protesting of, of, of speech on campus with the end goal being the creation of a certain narrative that col- that col- colleges are are um exclusionary towards conservatives and therefore we uh we need both sides of the story to be told therefore legitimizing um uh, uh, uh a libertarian uh, funded donor fu- uh, funded centers that then create those ideas that these the Coke donor ne- network uses to kind of reproduce um, its view of the world and legitimize it uh, within the university. So, so we wrote this before the latest hysteria about critical race theory, but it's exactly the same act- actors, right? This exactly the same mechanism. Christopher R- Ruffo at the Man- Manhattan Institute was the one who developed this idea that about critical, uh, uh race theory, ca- calling it the perfect weapon. And then it circulates through this right wing media ecosystem. There's currently, you know, all of the, there's these grassroots, uh, astroturf gra- grassroots organizations that are sending people to, um, 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 uh, 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 um, education boards and, and, um, you know, and the media, the media is blowing uh, this up as this big thing that we have to, and, and there, you know, you can, you look at heritage action and you look at these organizations, they're all working in lockstep and having the kinds of political outcomes that, that they desire, for example, in Virginia and in, in the governor's race there. So kind of th- thinking about this strategy of creating hysteria about um uh how liberal snowflakes and crazy college professors are destroying america that 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 is both hyperbolic but it comes from this very deeply entrenched very well resourced very well co- coordinated um strategy um that helps explain why something like free speech cult, like Culture, uh, campus cultural issues and critical race theory can become like massive platforms that become like right now, the entirety of the Republicans' political agenda. They have nothing else except that kind of hysteria and culture war hand-wringing. And that this is part of this large political operation that is deeply networked and very well resourced.
1: Well, yeah, that sounds uh, quite interesting and yeah, definitely uh, relevant to today. All right. Well, I want to just sort of thank you um, for being on the show again today. I really enjoyed it. Take care.
0: Yeah, no, it was great. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate a great discussion.